Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 is, uh, uh, gives us information about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It tells us earlier in the chapter about Jesus being um, um, baptized by John in the Jordan River. And then Mark just very simply says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness uh, where he was tempted of the devil. And following that, coming back from that time of temptation, beginning in verse 14, it says, Now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Then it tells us he went on to, to pick the uh, uh, disciples that would become the 12 apostles, and, um, and his ministry kicks off, if you will. Um, in mid-1970s, 1975, 1976, somewhere around there, I came in uh, contact with, and, and I don't really remember how it worked or how it happened, but I came in contact with some cassette tapes uh, by Brother Hagen, Kenneth Hagen Ministries. And what I heard changed my life. It, um, it set my, my life on course, the course that God wanted it to be on. And, uh, and it, was, it was a very unexpected thing. The, uh, the series that I got a hold of was Mountain Moving Faith Series. And I listened and listened and listened to those things uh, until I wore them out. Literally, they destroyed in the cassette player because I listened to them so much. And the thing, that, uh, the thing that changed my life was that I heard Brother Hagen say or teach that faith was something more than this enigma, mystery, undefined thing that I had come to the place where I thought that it was. I, had, uh, as I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, wonderful people, loved God with all their heart, walked in all the light they had. And, um, and I had memorized some scriptures concerning faith. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. I had memorized some of those things in the Sunday school programs and other things that I took part in. That and some other scriptures regarding faith. But faith was this unknown thing. At least it was to me. Maybe, maybe I was different. Maybe other people didn't look at it the same way or have the same issues that I did. But faith was this undefined thing that's real, real, real important. But nobody knows what it is. And the thing that, that changed my life, and I remember the exact moment that it occurred, it's just as real to me as if it happened yesterday. What happened exactly was that during the teaching that Brother Hagin was doing on one of those tapes, I don't even remember which tape it was, but he made a statement about Jesus defining faith. And he, he used Mark eleven twenty three. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. He talked about that being the definition of faith. And because of that, it came to my understanding, I finally realized that faith is a tool to be used, not this unknown quantity or something that nobody can put their hands on put their fingers on. And that changed my life. I began to, to look at what the Bible said and, and hear, hear more of, of uh, well, uh, maybe I shouldn't say hear more, hear more often, the, the six-tape series that I had. And I realized that faith can be used to produce things. It's meant to be a tool. Jesus called it a servant. It's meant for us to be used. Well, I'd never known that before. Now, fast forward some 42, three years later, I had another experience just like that that made, such, made just as big an impact on my life as the first one did in mid-1970s. And that was concerning the kingdom of God. Now, 
folks, I got to tell you, I'm not proud about admitting that it took me this long to understand something so simple. But just as this is these scriptures that we read in Mark chapter 1 refer to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God was up until the last year or so, for me, this unknown quantity. I saw that it was spoken of specifically. Jesus said, I have to go preach the kingdom of God. But what does that mean? What meaning does it have? I think for a lot of people, it doesn't have any meaning. It's just this general stuff about God. And as long as we're dealing with it as a general stuff about God type of thing, then it's not going to mean any more to you than it did to me. And it's not going to bring us benefit. But if you look at the, uh, if you do a study, just search through a Bible program with the two words kingdom and God, you'll find out that it's talked a lot about in Jesus' ministry and then also in the New Testament, book of Acts and the letters written to the church. And what made the difference for me and helped me to start seeing some things much more clearly helped me take a giant step forward in my relationship with God. And we're all on a journey. We're all on a, a Christian walk. We may be at different places depending on the things that we've heard and things that we've learned, but we're all on a journey. Nobody's ever going to arrive. Nobody's ever going to know it all. But the experience that I had, <clears throat> and it came exactly the same way, <clears throat> excuse me, it came exactly the same way. I found a definition for something I didn't know. I didn't know what kingdom of God meant, and Jesus defined it for us. Turn with me over to, to uh, Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6 is the right in the heart of what Jesus is talking about, the Sermon on the Mount. He starts with the Beatitudes in chapter 5 and, and uh, continues on talking about the things of God. And he's giving his disciples instructions on how to pray. So he says, beginning in verse 9, <clears throat> after this manner, therefore, pray ye. He said, after this manner, not these words, use these words. It wasn't meant to be something repeated over and over. It was meant something as a, as a framework or a skeleton for us to use in communicating with our Father God. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many times have we quoted that and recited the Lord's Prayer? For me, it had to be hundreds, maybe thousands. Growing up in church, this was something that was very prominent in the church that I grew up in. It was something that uh, even as a matter of um, uh, service, the order of service and so forth, we'd always, during the service, speak out and, and recite the Lord's Prayer. So I've heard this, I don't know how many times. Certainly enough times to get it if I was going to get it, but I never got it. But Jesus is defining, just like in Mark 23, he defined faith, which opened the whole world to me. It opened knowledge of the, of the Bible that I didn't have before. It caused me to, to understand why things work the way that they work to a, a much greater degree. Now I've got a definition that Jesus gives for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. When I saw that, it opened up so many things to me that, that I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't see before. It makes perfect sense when you think it through because God never changes. God's not different when we're in heaven than he is when we're on the earth. His will isn't different for when we're on the earth and when we get to heaven. The original creation was literally the kingdom of God on the earth. God made it. He established it. He gives us his purpose for the creation of man. In Genesis 1.26, it tells us God made man in his own image for the express purpose of having authority and dominion in the earth. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. And certainly before the fall, before 
sin enters the scene, everything was exactly here on the earth according to the will of God, just like it is in heaven. I've made this statement before, but it came as a real shock to me. The Lord had to bring it to my attention. It came as a shock to me to realize that in 30 years of pastoring the church, more than that now, but at that time in 30 years of pastoring the church, nobody had ever asked me about the will of God in heaven. With all the questions that people have and all the arguments the church world has about whether or not healing belongs to us, whether or not the baptism of the Holy Ghost is for today, speaking in tongues, all this kind of stuff, of all the questions and the controversies and the arguments that are made, none of them are about the will of God in heaven. None. Everybody understands the will of God in heaven. But why shouldn't we understand the will of God in the earth? God's not any different now that we're in the earth and when we'll be in heaven. God's the same. He never changes. So why should his will be any different? Where do we get this notion, we the church world, the modern church world, where do we get this notion that God wants us to suffer here on the earth when we know clearly that the, there's no suffering in heaven? Where do we get the idea that God might or might not heal the sick when we know that his will is healing in will, his will in heaven is healing to such a degree that sickness doesn't exist. Why would it be different here? He hadn't changed. And so the kingdom of God, the understanding of the kingdom of God, the definition of the kingdom of God, where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven, caused me to... Well, I don't want to overblow it, but I don't think I can. It caused me to look at everything differently. It's one of the biggest things. It's one of the biggest revelations. It's one of the biggest changes in my relationship with God that I've ever experienced. Turn with me to, um, well, we're right here in Matthew chapter 6. Look down to verse 33 with me before we go to something else. Here's a scripture that we accepted as truth and valid. But with my background, denominational background, I didn't know what this meant. Here in verse 63, after Jesus is talking about God caring about the, the, the grass of the field and the birds of the, of the air, and how much more will he feed and clothe you, Jesus is telling us. Then in verse 33, he says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I've known that scripture since I was, since the earliest remembrance I have of going to Sunday school. Seek first the kingdom of God. Everybody talks about that verse. Everybody recognizes that this is a baseline or a beginning point for every Christian experience. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But how do you do that if you don't know what the kingdom of God is? I dare say that 90-something percent of the church world that knows this verse and can, can speak to this verse, if they can't memorize it, they at least have heard it enough to, to be familiar with it. We see Jesus telling us, instructing us to seek first the kingdom of God. But if you don't know what the kingdom of God is, how do you do that? How in the world do you do that? I'll have to confess I was in that same category for too long. I knew what it said. I knew what it was instructing us to do. But what does it mean? But if you attach a definition, the definition that Jesus gave to us, instead of seeking the kingdom of God, we should be seeking the will of God done in the earth in our own lives, just like it is in heaven. Well, how do you seek after his righteousness? Well, you can't grow in righteousness. So seeking after the kingdom of God and his righteousness is ha has to be. The only thing that could be is gaining knowledge about the fact that we've been made righteous. Well, we know that if you do that, Jesus is explaining to his disciples and to us, we know if you do that, material things will be added to you. If you do that, if you seek to get the will of God being done in the earth in every respect in your life, just like you want to follow the will of God in heaven, 
then material things will be added to you. Now, turn with me over to uh, Mark chapter 10. It tells us the story of the rich young ruler, the man that comes to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus quotes some of the, the Old Testament commandments to him. He gives him instruction to keep the commandments. The rich young ruler answers in verse 20 and says, all these things I've observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him. Now, it's really important. I think it's significant that the Holy Ghost would say it, impress Mark to say it this way. Jesus loved the guy when he was rich. That thought, that idea was not promoted in the church I grew up in. The idea they had, and again, they were lovely people, wonderful people, loved God with all their hearts, walking in all the light they had, they just didn't have much light. And so, based on the thinking or the, 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 the understanding that we thought we had, riches, wealth, this world's wealth, was on an opposing track or an opposing course to being able to walk in the love of God and please God. The Bible, however, says that Jesus loved this guy while he was rich. And then he gave him instruction. There was something missing in his life. The rich young ruler understood that. He knew that. That was probably the reason why he came to Jesus in the first place. But Jesus, beholding, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, one thing, one thing you lack. Folks, this guy's doing pretty good if there's only one thing missing. He said, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatsoever you have, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. I want you to notice what Jesus is offering this guy. He's offering him something that he probably didn't know, which was giving, seeing to the welfare of other people, helping and blessing other people, lays up treasure in heaven for you. So Jesus says, you need to divest yourself of some of the belongings that you have in exchange for treasure in heaven. Because what you do with your money shows where your heart is. Where your, heart, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also, Jesus goes on to say. And that's always true. What you put your money into, what you invest in is what you really care about. For a lot of people, that's them. They care about them, so they invest in them. So what, what is the one thing that this guy lacks? Jesus is not mad at him for having possessions. The one thing that he lacks is treasure in heaven, and you can only get that by giving to others. Notice the guy's reaction. Oh, I, I should point this out before we go any further. Jesus is offering him a place with the 12. Come and follow me. That's what he said to Peter. That's what he said to John. That's what he said to James. What he said to Nathaniel. He's offering him a place in his inner circle. But the rich young ruler, verse 22, was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. I think a better way to say that is great possessions had him. He wasn't the possessor. He was the one that was possessed of his possessions, of his wealth. So he went away sad at that saying and, and, and was grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about, notice verse 23, and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Now, if the, if the disciples <clears throat> were a poor, homeless group that's so often depicted, following Jesus from place to place, nobody had anything, just gypsies, vagabonds, going from place to place, then that would have been the perfect time for Peter and the rest of the guys to push their chest out a little bit and say, yep, 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 yep. Got to be poor like us. That's what the modern church was teaching. Still does in many quarters. Got to be poor for God to love you. Well, if that is the case, if that's true, then this is the perfect time for the disciples to brag on themselves and say, they, we, we've got it made. We're the examples. But notice their reaction. When Jesus said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God, the disciples were astonished at his words. What caused them to be astonished? 
What caused them to be astonished, folks, is that these guys knew that God's will for his covenant partner, Abraham, and therefore for all the descendants of Abraham, these guys included, that a part of that blessing, a part of that covenant, a part of that promise was to be rich in silver and cattle and gold, just like he made Abraham. So when Jesus says, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the disciples are saying, you're going to be kidding. They were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said unto them, now he clarifies it. He said, children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure. They've never been blown away by anything Jesus said like that. At least not up to that point. They were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? I want you to understand, folks, this is an issue of salvation for them. They're saying who can be saved, which indicates that they are so convinced that God's blessings here on the earth will make you rich that now they're thinking, well, how can you walk in the blessings of Abraham, have what God promised in the old covenant, and still be saved based on what Jesus is saying? And Jesus simply replies, with men it's impossible, with God all things are possible. Now, folks, I want you to understand, this is just an, uh, an explanation or a, uh, an illustration of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Even the disciples knew, and, and they didn't know much of anything. Not throwing rocks, we wouldn't have been in any better situation if we were there too. But they did know that the blessing of Abraham included wealth. Keeping the word in the Old Covenant, walking in line with the Old Testament, the commandments, brought wealth to the people of God because that's what God intended. They know this. Notice the condition that riches have with the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't say riches keep you out of the kingdom of God. He said having your heart in the wrong place keeps you out of the kingdom of God. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. This rich young ruler in, that's uh, told about in Mark chapter 10, he's sorrowful because he's not acting on what the Bible tells him to do, doing what Jesus said to do concerning the riches that obedience to the word has brought him. He has riches with sorrow because he's not willing to act on what Jesus told him to do. So that's got to be part of the kingdom of God then, doesn't it? It was God's will for Abraham. It's God's will for you and me. Even the disciples understood that riches were part of God's blessing. Let's look at another example. Look with me to Luke chapter 4. Where the Bible says Jesus went about preaching the kingdom of God, we know in, at least in one place what that looked like. Luke chapter 4, verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Folks, every one of those things that are identified are the will of God in heaven. And so they have to be the will of God here. Jesus preaching the kingdom of God is very simply telling them, God wants the same thing for you here that he wants for you in heaven. And he's anointed me to bring that about. He's anointed me to bring that about. Now, we know what happens. We know that they rejected him. We know that they didn't accept what he said. After he gave the book back to uh, the rabbi, the leader of the synagogue, he sat down and said to the people, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Everybody knows. No question on anybody's mind. Everybody knows that these verses of scripture that he found in the scrolls, what we know of, is, uh, know of as Isaiah 61, 
what he found are messianic scriptures. This is what the Messiah will do. And so when Jesus says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, it's the same thing to him saying, this is talking about me. This is who I am. Without using the words, the understanding is unmistakable. He's saying, I am the Messiah that this is speaking to. That's me. And they wanted to kill him. They wouldn't believe him. Mark's account of this, Mark 6, 5, it says, and he could in Nazareth, there do no mighty works. Laid his hands on a few sickly folks, a few folks with minor ailments, and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. He tried to counteract it by going around their villages, teaching in the synagogues. But we don't ever have any account that the power of the gospel of the kingdom had any impact in Nazareth at all. No blind eyes were opened. No lepers were cleansed. No cripples were raised up because the people rejected it. Let's look again at some other things in this regard. Matthew chapter 12 tells us about a guy in the temple that Jesus cast the devil out of. Verse 22, then there was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, is that not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. He's using the devil's power to trick us. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan... He is divided against himself. How shall his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. The kingdom of God is defined as the will of God done in the earth just like it is in heaven. Anybody devil possessed in heaven? Oppressed in any way in heaven? Held in bondage in any form or fashion in heaven? How come? Because it's not God's will. Well, then why would it be God's will here? There's something else before I get away from this. There's something else I want to point out to you. And notice that Jesus says, and it's not the only time in the Bible that it refers to it. But Jesus talks about the next generation. Their children shall accept what they're rejecting. You remember that was the same principle and the same pattern in the Old Testament where Israel refused to go in to take the promised land because they were afraid. And so they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years until the next generation, the children of those who perished, followed Joshua in and took the promised land. The principle is very simply this. Young people are sometimes more likely to accept the truth of the word than their parents. I don't know why that is. I don't know why it's the older people that are, maybe they just get stuck in their ways or whatever. But when I look at all the things going on in the world, the church world, trying to reach millennials, what they're really looking for is truth. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for truth. I watched a, uh, a, a business meeting service by another church, great big church, well-known church. You know if I told you the name. But I'm not trying to criticize anybody. So the, the, who it was doesn't matter. But there was a friend of mine that, that recommended that I should watch this. It was unusual. They had never seen it handled like this. And there was a lot of good things in it that, uh, that I got from it. But I was so aware of trying to reach a certain group of people, them trying to reach a certain group of people. They kept using these buzzwords and catchphrases. They wanted to engage with everybody, which meant they were on their social media during the service and and they could text back and forth or do whatever to answer people's questions if they wanted to engage. Another thing that they used was celebrate. 
They all wanted to celebrate the people that were there. Is that really what church is supposed to be? Folks, if I'm supposed to celebrate you, what do I do? You might, I assume that you wouldn't know this. Maybe more people know about it than I, than I think. But I am inundated with everybody's idea about how to reach the millennials. And there's this concept, there's this notion that you've got to reach them with just a certain way. You've got to reach them with technology. You've got to reach them with cool-sounding phrases and words. And What makes the millennials different people than anybody else? But I see so much of the church adapting and turning things around. And everything I've seen, I, and don't, this is not the final word on anything, certainly. I don't have the final word on anything except what goes on in my life. But so much of what I see winds up watering down the truth. I'm convinced that people have always just been looking for the truth. Amen. Every age and every generation. So if we're going to reach the millennials, or if we're going to reach anybody, it's going to have to be with the truth. So we see that Jesus identifies clearly exercising authority over the devil, specifically in this case, casting the devil out, breaking his power and casting the devil out. Clearly, that has to be part of the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. I always thought, and I'm, I'm embarrassed by this, but I just didn't see it. I always thought the disciples went around preaching Jesus was the Messiah. But that can't be true. It cannot be true. Because in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus comes to the place of Caesarea Philippi and he says, who do people say that I am? They spoke up and said, well, some say you're Elijah the prophet raised from the dead. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus says, but who do you say I am? Now, if they've been preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, what in the world is Jesus asking them, who do they say he is? Why wouldn't their answer be, and if he did ask the question, why wouldn't their answer be, well, you're the Messiah, just like you told us, just like we've been telling everybody else. But Peter answers by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, meaning him too. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And he says, upon this rock, the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. He said, upon this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I love the picture that this paints. It shows that the devil's defenses are stationary, and the church is on the move. One translation says it this way, the gates of hell shall not be able to withstand it or hold out against it. The picture is that the church... The righteous ones of God here on the earth. The picture is the church is pushing against the Satan's boundaries and Satan's defenses. It's not like the devil's running after us. He's trying to hold his, hold his ground. But the church is pushing forward based on the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. The church is pushing forward. And the gates of hell will not be able to hold out against us. And then he says something Fascinating. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's not really a great translation. It simply means this. It means that Jesus is saying, everything that has been bound in heaven, you have authority to bind on the earth. Everything that has been loosed in heaven, you have the authority to loose it on the earth. That's what it really means. 
It means heaven will back you up, but it starts here. It starts with you exercising your authority. And Jesus says that's the way that he'll build his church. He'll build it on authority. He'll build it on the believer's authority against and over the devil, over sickness and disease, over poverty and lack. In other words, he's saying the kingdom of God that you've been preaching will become a reality in the believer's life. Let's go back to Luke chapter 9. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Why did Jesus make such a big deal about giving authority to people when he was here on the earth? Because that was the original plan for God, for man, when he was created by God and in his image. He was created, man was created to exercise authority and dominion on the earth. So when Jesus comes to establish the kingdom of God on the earth, which most of the Jewish nation was looking for a physical result, deliver them from the bondage of the Romans or any other enemies. When Jesus comes to the earth, he comes with one purpose, and that is to restore God's original plan for man, to restore man to a place of authority. That's what God made you for. If you're not exercising and operating in authority in your life, to bring about the will of God in your life here and now, just like it will be when we get to heaven, then we're failing in our job. So when Jesus says the gates of hell should not prevail against it, the first thing he makes mention of is the exercise of authority. So here he gives the disciples power and authority over all de devils and to cure diseases, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. That's got to be something specific, folks. That's got to be something that has meaning. We know that they don't know anything about the crucifixion of Jesus, they meaning the disciples. They don't have a clue about the crucifixion of Jesus. They don't have a clue about the resurrection of Jesus. They don't have a clue about Jesus being our sacrifice. And we know that because when these things happen, when Jesus is sacrificed on the cross, they spread and run away like cowards. So much so that Jesus has to appear to them after he's raised from the dead and upbraid them for their unbelief, saying, I told you this stuff. Well, those are not the guys that Jesus is going to entrust with preaching whatever they think about God and, and heaven. No way is he going to entrust them with that. What does he entrust them with? He entrusts them with the message that God wants things to be here on the earth just like they are in heaven. And that's the reason why he made the earth the way he did. The works have been gummed up because of Adam's fall. But that didn't change God. That didn't change God's purpose. That didn't change God's plan. His plan is the same thing now as it's always been, and that is for you to exercise authority over the enemy in your life. For you to experience days of heaven on the earth as the Old Testament refers to it. God's will in heaven here and now. So it says in verse 6, and they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel. We already know what gospel that is, the good news that the kingdom of heaven is near. They departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they did what they were told to do. Luke chapter 10 and verse 9, it tells us what the, the 70 were sent out to do. I won't read the whole thing for the sake of time. Let me pull out one scripture in verse 9. Jesus is giving them instruction, and he says, And heal the sick that are therein, talking about the cities that will receive you. Heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God has come nigh or near unto you. Healing has to be the kingdom of God. And these guys, the disciples, the 12 apostles, plus the 70, go out exercising authority over sickness and disease. These guys even exercise authority over the devil, cast out devils, and, and it's not even part of Jesus' instruction. But they find that it works, 
The exercise of authority over the devil works in every regard, in every way. Their message is very simply, God wants it to be here for you on the earth now, just like he wants it to be for you in heaven. And everybody knows what it's going to be like in heaven. There may be a few details that we haven't got figured out, but we know enough about God describing heaven to know that there's nothing that can hurt or destroy. These guys come back in verse 17. The 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power, literally authority, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power. This is a different word. It does mean power. It means ability. I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the ability of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says the same thing to these guys. He said righteousness is the key. Righteousness is the issue. We think, bless our hearts, we think because we've been so poorly taught perhaps, the church has kept us in the dark for so long about what the Bible really says. I don't think that's purposeful, but because people didn't know it themselves. You, you can only give somebody the truth that you know. But the church for so long has looked at righteousness as either not belonging to us or ho-hum. Probably the majority of the church, the vast majority I would guess, of the church does not accept the fact that we have been made righteous. They've got in their thinking some little idea that God kind of put righteousness over onto us like you throw a coat over somebody's back. But it's not really ours. It's his, and we don't deserve it, and that's not really who he is. God's just acting like that's who we are so he can forgive us and take us to heaven. And if that's true, folks, then God's a liar and a cheat. I don't believe that, do you? No, in fact, the Bible says that Jesus was made sin for us that we might be made the righteous, righteousness of God in him. There was a change of nature. There was an exchange of natures. Jesus took on your sinful death, eternal, spiritually dead nature so that you could take on his nature of righteousness. That's who you are. It may not be who you ever live up to, but that's who you are. That's the reality of who you are. And I found that the more that I focus on the reality of who I am, the more spiritual equipment I have to live like the Bible says I am. So it's back to the same thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Mark chapter 4, Jesus speaking about the or has spoken about the parable of the sower sowing the word. And the disciples want to know what he means. See again, folks, with all the questions that the disciples have for Jesus while he's here on the earth, there is no way in my thinking or in my understanding, there is no way he's going to turn them loose to just tell people what they think. Because so much of their thinking is wrong and Jesus has to correct it. So when Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower sowing the word, verse 11, he says something very interesting in my thinking. He said to them, unto you it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. So there must be a mystery to the kingdom of God. Now, a mystery is something that's hidden, secret, or unknown. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to reveal to you the secret part of the kingdom of God. I'm going to reveal to you the unknown part of the kingdom of God. He explains what the parable means. He talks about the different types of people, the different types of ground. Then he comes down to verse 26. He says, So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground. <clears throat> Now, again, it's the parable of the sower sowing the word that started all this. 
And we know the sower sowing the word means he planted the truth of the word like a seed into his own heart, into his own spirit, through the words that he spoke. The words that the sower spoke had different impact and different results in different people's lives based on the attention that they gave to the word, based on to what degree they accepted the truth of the word. Just like in Nazareth, Jesus told the truth when he said he was anointed to heal the brokenhearted, preach the gospel to the poor, preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. He was anointed to do healing miracles in Nazareth, but it didn't work there. It didn't work there not because God didn't want it to work there. If he hadn't wanted it to work there, Jesus wouldn't have said, I'm anointed to do this stuff here in Nazareth. It didn't work because they didn't accept it. They had some reasoning. They had some thinking. They had some mindset that said, it can't be, this guy cannot be the Messiah. We've known him since he was a kid. He can't be the Messiah, so he can't be really sent here by God to do this stuff. And so according to their faith, that's exactly the way it was. They rejected Jesus, meaning they rejected his power and his purpose. Here Jesus says that if you'll accept what the word says about who God is, about who you are, and about what you were sent and put on this earth to do, then the kingdom of God will be realized in your life. The will of God will occur and manifest and result in your life now, just like when you get to heaven. So Jesus says in verse 26, so is the kingdom of God, the whole kingdom of God, the whole of everything that God wants to do in your life is like casting seed or speaking words into the ground, into the ground, of course, is our own spirits. The whole of the kingdom of God, everything about the kingdom of God is very simply comes down to you planting the word of God by speaking it into your own heart. Everything works like that. Everything works like that. Now, folks, if that's true, I want you to consider something. I know that the majority of you are not resistant to what I'm saying, but if this is new for anybody, I want you to consider something very simply. If this is true, if Jesus told us the truth, that everything about the kingdom of God comes down to speaking the word into your own heart, how big an issue then does confession become? Let's turn it around and look at it from another angle. If this is true, thank God it is, and confession therefore becomes the paramount, the ultimate issue, then how would the devil come against that? See, folks, the, the criticism that us faith preachers get, it's not because we preach faith. It's because we preach confession. You can't find anybody in the, in the church world, as an example, you can't find anybody in the church world that'll say, we don't believe in the Holy Ghost. The issue is not, the issue of baptism in the Holy Ghost is not the work of the Holy Ghost. It's the tongues. Why? Because everything in the kingdom of God comes down to what comes out of your mouth. So if you're the devil and you want to fight the most powerful thing that there is, which is the believer's tongue, you're going to have to create in them a mindset or a thought pattern that confession doesn't work the way the Bible says it does. And that praying divine secrets as given by the utterance of the Holy Ghost isn't really for you today. Now, if you think of all the Christians that have bought into those two points, confession, it doesn't really matter what you say, and tongues is not for today. Look how defenseless the believer is. The devil can't strip them of their salvation. But he's stripped a lot of people of the power of their salvation. So if confession is not important, if you've accepted the idea, the devil's idea, that confession is not a big deal, we are making way too big a deal about that, and praying in tongues or speaking in tongues is not for today. 
What do they have to work with? What are they left with? Well, they're left with the idea that Jesus said that his name was greater than anything else in heaven, earth, or hell. But if they're not confessing the word, using the name of Jesus really doesn't matter. If you're not giving something for God to keep, uh, to keep or watch over or honor by speaking the word, what good does the name of Jesus do? The name of Jesus just becomes the, the identifying mark that you're about through with your prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. See, God needs to know when you're closing it up. And that's all you got. So there's a mystery to the kingdom of God. And thank God we have it. Turn with me over to Colossians chapter 1. When Jesus told his disciples in, Mark, in uh, Matthew 6, when he gave them the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, we certainly know that Jesus wouldn't instruct his disciples or anybody else for that matter to pray something that wasn't God's will. The fact that Jesus says to pray like this or pray in this manner tells us that it has to be the will of God because that's what Jesus did. If Jesus is operating contrary to the will of God, that makes him a sinner and an unworthy sacrifice. So when he tells them to pray that the kingdom would come, that the will of God would be done in the earth just like it is in heaven, that was something that had not yet come to the earth. Jesus brought an example of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God itself didn't begin until after he was raised from the dead and had paid the eternal sacrifice for man's sins. Paul writing to us by the Holy Ghost We'll start in verse 12. He says, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet or able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Notice that phrase, the inheritance of the saints in light. The inheritance of the saints in light, who had delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. The kingdom of Jesus has got to be the kingdom of God, doesn't it? Any possibility that it could be anything else? Of course not. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus was here on the earth. When Jesus gave the, the apostles, the twelve, authority over sickness and disease and to cast out devils. When he transferred authority to the seventy and sent them out to heal the sick. They found that his name had power over, over uh, evil spirits and would cast evil spirits out too. All these things relative to Jesus' instructions for, the, for his followers center around authority. Every one of them. Every one of them. The kingdom of God has got to be that which concerns and deals with authority on the part of the believer. Now, however, when Paul is writing following the resurrection of Jesus, he's telling us what the resurrection of Jesus did. The resurrection of Jesus delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of God for the purpose of being an inheritor to receiving the inheritance of the saints. What is the inheritance of the saints? First and foremost, it's freedom. Righteousness. Secondarily, not that it's less important, but because it's based on the righteousness that we receive when Jesus makes us new. Secondarily, authority. Let's look at another way Paul said it over in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. And I'll quit with this. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Paul, after having finished in, verse, in chapter 7, talking about his own struggle with his flesh, after he was saved, after he was born again, the trouble that he had trying to live up to the righteousness that he believed that he was made, that the Holy Ghost had revealed to him that, that he, is, and as well as us, were made. He comes to the realization at the end of chapter 7 that there was deliverance provided for each and every one of us. 
So here's this conclusion. Let me, let me say this in a better way. He's saying that behavior doesn't dictate whether or not we've been made righteous. See, the devil wants to tell you you're not righteous because you messed up. And that's never true. Never true. You're not righteous because you didn't mess up. You're righteous because Jesus gave you his. And it's only when you quit listening to the devil concerning your behavior, your mistakes, the errors you make, whether accidental or intentional. The Bible makes a clear distinction between sinning from your heart and sinning from the flesh. And sinning from the heart is defined in the scripture as one isolated incident where you choose to give up your salvation. But folks, there's a qualifier. If you go look over in Hebrews chapter 7, I'm not asking you, or Hebrews chapter 6, I'm not asking you to turn there. But if you want to study it out, Hebrews chapter 6 identifies a progression that takes place before a person can even, with their eyes open, yield or surrender their salvation. And if you look at the list of things that are required, most Christians never mature to the place where they could give up their salvation. Most Christians never grow and develop to the point where they experience all the things that the Bible says you have to experience before then you make an eyes open decision. Yeah, by the way, I don't want heaven. I'm going to spend my eternity in hell. So behavior is never the issue. It can never be the issue. If our righteousness is because of the sacrifice of Jesus and the blood that he shed for us, which the Bible clearly identifies that that is the source. If it's based on the blood of Jesus, it can never be based on anything else. It cannot be based on your failure. And to think that your failure dictates whether or not you're righteous is the admission that I'm more important and more significant than Jesus who shed his blood for me. Behavior is never the issue. It can never be the issue. Paul, having come to that conclusion, says this in Romans 8, 1. He says, there is therefore now. Everybody say now. now. Not when we get to heaven. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Notice that last phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Paul is going to identify what that means a little bit further down into the chapter. He's saying you're, he says that you're not in the flesh but instead in the spirit if Christ lives in you. However, that phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, is not in the original text in verse 1. It is in the original text in verse 4. Why the translators pulled it up from verse 4 and put it in verse 1 is something we can only speculate about. The only thing that makes sense to me about why the translators would alter the transcripts in such a way as to put it in a different place was that it was too great for them to accept to be true. Because the truth is, what the Holy Ghost impresses Paul to write to us, the never-changing, the unchanging eternal truth, is that there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. Verse 2 tells us why. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. In other words, he's saying the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the equivalent to the kingdom of God. And it's translated us, our decision to accept Jesus and the new birth that comes as a result of that decision. has delivered us from the power of darkness, the law of sin and death, everything that the devil had to hold us back. Now we're free. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. Stealing, killing, and destroying is the devil's work. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life 
and that you might have it more abundantly. What does life or abundant life and abundant life, what does that mean? It means the will of God done here on the earth in your life just like it is in heaven. You remember when Paul said, I knew a man in Christ, he's writing to the Corinthians. He said, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven who heard things that were not lawful to utter, whether in the body or out of the body, I can't tell. I need to ask you a question. I want you to consider this. How could Paul not know? Everybody agrees Paul was talking about himself. How could Paul not know whether he was in the body or out of the body? How could he not know? It tells me he had to be by himself when this happened. Because whoever was there with him would certainly know whether his body left or not. But Paul speaking about his own experience, how could he not know whether he was in the body or out of the body? Because the real you is the same whether you're here on the earth or caught up into heaven. You don't change. Your spirit is not one bit different in heaven than it is here on the earth. You don't have one bit of authority, greater authority in heaven than you have on the earth. Now, if the way the church portrays our Christian life here on the earth as being held in bondage to sin, sin in the flesh, and all that kind of stuff, then you've got to accept, you have to consider that being caught up into heaven, if, if their position is true, being caught up into heaven where you're no longer held back by the weakness of the flesh or the sins of the flesh or whatever, there would have to be some way for you to know. The way most people have it figured out is that when we get to heaven, somehow or another, we're going to have power. Well, if that's true, if you had more power in heaven than you have here, then he would have known whether he was in the body or out of the body. There's no way he couldn't have known whether he was in the body or out of the body, except or unless it's just the same as being here as being there. That's the only way he could not know. It's the only way. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life. It's a spiritual law, folks. It's a spiritual law that's governed by the words of our mouths. It's a spiritual law that takes effect and comes to pass or comes into reality based on the word of God that we speak. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. It's not going to someday. It has already. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Father, that we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because of his shed blood. We thank you that we've been granted authority over all sickness and disease and over every work of the enemy. We thank you, Father, that provisions have been made for us through the blessing of Abraham, the promised blessing, which is now a reality for each and every one of us who claim it by faith. We thank you that you've made us rich. Jesus was made poor for our sakes. The scripture says that we by his sacrifice might be made rich. We thank you, Father, for the authority that we have. And we believe, we choose to believe that the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. So whatever we're standing for, whatever we're believing for, whatever we're confessing to be true in our lives, Satan doesn't have enough power to withstand it. Thank you, Father, that we are the head and not the tail. We are above and not beneath. We're blessed in everything that we put our hands to. You are on our side. Lord, Paul said to us, wrote to the Romans and to us as well, that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not about rules and regulations. But it is about righteousness. It is about peace. It is about the joy in the Holy Ghost. So we thank you, Father, that we are righteous. We thank you that peace means that you're on our side. 
And we thank you, Lord, for restoring our joy as we exercise authority over the evil one. We love you, Father. We thank you that all of these things are true because your word says so. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Thank God we've been made righteous. Thank God all authority is given in us over the work of the enemy here on this earth. And nothing shall by any means hurt us. Thank you, Father, that our words come to pass. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got a lot to be thankful for. Amen. Thank you so much for being here with us. If you can come back and be here tonight for Healing School, we invite you to do so. Have a great day, and we'll see you soon.